Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 165 of the In Squash podcast. I'm Jerry Gibson, your host. Uh, firstly, uh, everyone just want to say thanks for all of you who've been listening lately. Uh, we've had some good ones. Uh, We've just recently had the two finalists of the PSA finals. Uh, we had Marwan El Sherbagi a few weeks back. Take a listen to that, and you'll see why he, he won this past week. He was uh, uh, shot out of a cannon in Manchester, and he kept on going here uh, to the PSA finals where he, he just defeated our most recent guest, uh, Kareem Abdul Gawad, who has been playing uh, extremely good squash, getting to the final in both of those uh, first two events and looking like... Uh, He's playing some of his best squash uh, in many years. So uh, anyways, those are, were recent episodes. But today's episode, World Squash Day Man, uh, squashmad.com uh, founder. And uh, he's been doing so much for the game right now, given the precarious situation that uh, squash seems to find itself in, especially with uh, the COVID. Alan Thatcher uh, is on the podcast, and we discuss so many uh, very important topics uh, uh, with regard to uh, uh, spread, uh, sort of uh, keeping the game alive, I guess is uh, the right way to put it. Uh, as we know, the game, uh, we're, we're losing courts everywhere now due to, to the COVID, due to closures as a result of that. But even prior to that, um, we call this maybe, uh, hopefully we don't reach a black swan moment. I think, I think we've seen this coming, but we haven't, uh, and we talk about it on the podcast, maybe Squash hasn't taken all the right measures in order to to increase the popularity of the game amongst certain demographics, uh, the younger peop- younger age groups, the older age groups, the beginner level players. And we discuss all of this today on the podcast uh, and many other uh, interesting topics, especially uh, what Squirrel World Squash Day, uh, the inception of it. We go back and take a look at that and what World Squash Day means this time around. Obviously, there's a lot to do with COVID uh, and how to... Uh, go forward with squash under the new normal and uh, also uh, how to grow the game which needs growing Uh, we take a look at uh, the trendy sport now which is pickleball and what it's doing and uh, just sort of uh, take uh, sort of took a page out of squash's book back in the 1970s and 80s when squash was the trendy sport but nowadays things are different and uh, pickleball has got a good thing going right now and we take a look at how that is why that is and what squash has to do and what uh, many people many uh, squash minds out there feel have has to be done and are trying to get things done at the moment right now but uh, at a snail's pace unfortunately but uh, Alan and I talk about all of this uh, in uh, with, with uh, a view towards uh, October uh, 10th just around the corner world squash day now before we get into uh, the podcast today with Alan I just want to tell you about our incredible sponsor active scout uh now i've been talking about this for several weeks and i just had a discussion with rob eberhardt the uh the man behind active scout and he's going to be coming on i believe next week uh this is all about growing the game as well and i know alan and uh, rob have had discussions about what active scout can bring to the bring to the platform and bring to the table active scout is um working away on a new build that will help clubs grow and expand their membership base, which is critical at this point. And, uh, next week we're going to have rob on the podcast to lay this all out he's uh, set me up 
as well on Active Scout, the app. So I'm going to be able to uh, help take everybody through that. So you've heard me talk uh, about Active Scout uh, prior to many of my podcasts. So here and only here on the In, In Squash podcast will you get the full tour of the app. So it's going to be great for club managers, club pros, uh, people who are just looking for a game, people looking for a game with the uh, person of the right level. Uh, this is what you need. And there's so much more. I, I mean, I really don't know much about it till now, but uh, we'll learn all about Active Scout in the coming weeks. If you want to learn more, though, on your own, just go to www.activescout.com. That's active without the E, scout.com. Active Scout without the E. And now, without further ado, episode 165. Alan Thatcher and World Squash Day, October 10th, 2020. Jerry. Well, Thatcher, how, how, are, how you are you? Good, Nate. Good. good, thank you. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Good. I like that shirt. I've got to get myself one. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got a spare one behind you. Okay, you, there you go. You. Okay. <laughs> I'll, uh, uh, where, what do I have to do to get one? Just send in. Just uh, send me your address and I'll get it to you. <laughs> and I'll, no, I want to contribute, obviously, uh, uh, to World Squad. Okay, that's very good. Then I'll send you the link. Please do. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. That's very uh, kind. Alan, uh, it's great to see you. Great to hear your voice. And um, how's everything going with you? Uh, um, healthy uh, now uh, after a little bit of an illness last week, I guess? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I had the opposite of coronavirus with my temperature actually dropping. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. We had a heat wave two weeks ago where the temperature was up in the 30s, and now it's down to about 10. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I did 20 minutes of gardening outside, came in, and I felt absolutely freezing. My wife took my temperature, and instead of being 98, it was down at 93. My good, my good. So technically, I was, um, what is it called? Hypothermia. Yes, technically, I was suffering from hypothermia. <laughs> Yeah, so stay stay away from the garden. <laughs> yes, it's. I've always known that gardening is bad for your squash. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, the last time I I had a really bad back injury. Mm. Uh, I I rarely got injured over the years, but it was because of gar- I was trying to pull something out of the pull some weeds or something. Or yes, yeah. Back went. I did. I did the same. As well as the low temperature, I pulled my side moving some large pots around so yeah it's yeah gardening is bad you need a you need an hour's warm-up before doing any gardening exactly you'd think squash would prepare you for gardening but no no you're right it's (laughs) brutal (laughs) well uh you know there's lots going on alan yes i mean around to cover uh i don't think we're going to be able to cover it all but uh sure really appreciate you coming on we've got world squash coming up in five days but before we go there i just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on uh obviously the return of the pro game uh manchester and then uh uh obviously the psa the the final uh, final event there yes uh, my opinion was it was fa- firstly obviously uh, fantastic to see, and then uh, and the uh, the finals and semifinal produced some real. Maybe it was just we hadn't seen it for so long, but it just seemed to me like some guys came and they were really really uh, well prepared. Yes, I 
I think you could see that the guys like Marwan, who'd obviously been training hard. It's yeah. obviously a shame that his brother wasn't there because he's been training hard in the UK a lot of the time with Joel Makin. Yeah. And I think for Joel, training with Mohammed has given him a massive list, uh, lift. Mm. And you could see in his performances that he's stepped up a notch. Yeah, I had a good win over uh, over Paul there in the, the yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I mean, I was really impressed. Marwan was the one one guy that I thought played uh, extremely well. And I, I, I just, uh, I, you get a lot of people who say, you know, his tactics are a little bit off. But uh, that's neither here nor there. I, I think he, you know, that's just something he's. That's his way of playing. I don't think it's that bad at all and, and he played extremely well but uh, Gawad played brilliantly uh, didn't play well in the final but uh, played really well in Manchester and again in the lead up to the final in Cairo. The thing is the guys are just coming back to tournament play so almost two tournaments back to back um, obviously they're not used to it they've had six eight months off yeah so Marwan did well to to hold it together in the second tournament. Oh, he did. Yeah. Some of the guys faded. So Yeah. No, I was I was impressed with the with the quality uh, especially from Marwan, but with a lot of guys like you said Joel yeah. Mason and uh, mm-hmm. Kareem uh, Abdul Gawad, uh, he was just he looked very 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 fit and fast. Yeah. He normally, you know, he always looks good on court, but uh, uh, this time around he actually looked kind of trim. Well, they had a longer break than usual. You know, the guys do have a long summer break if they choose to use it wisely. Yeah. To have a rest and then start building their fitness for the new season. But obviously, the guys had a huge opportunity to rest their weary bodies, get any little niggly injuries sorted out, and then train up. But I think for some of them, they lacked a little bit of motivation because they didn't know when the serious stuff would start. Yeah. yeah. And psychologically, they must have found it very difficult playing in venues with no audience. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I mean, that, that was one issue. And then, then the one, one positive, despite the no audience, I like the, the new towel on the court rule. I think, I think yes. that's quite, uh, that's going to, you know, obviously uh, help get rid of all the sweat that, you know, guys are always uh, trying to wipe away sweat on, on court all, yes. all the time. And then, Clearly, yeah. to avoid wiping your hand on the wall, that, that's the, the other issue. Mm, of course. But, uh, you know, the game is the game. There's still uh, some fantastic squash, some, uh, some yeah. controversy, as, as we like to see sometimes, to debate the, uh, the lets and strokes. And... Well, I was so pleased to see Hani Arel Hamami do so well in the women's. Yeah. What a performance to come back from two love down. From two love down uh, against uh, Nora, who's always quite a good fighter. Herself. Not, yeah. What a battle. Yeah. So great. great to see the pro. For me, game. That was the match of the whole tournament. Yeah. You know, to uh, have a match like that in the final. No, a young player coming back against a more experienced opponent from two love down to win in over 80 minutes. That was pretty brutal. Yeah. And she, she'd been uh, sort of laying the groundwork uh, previous to that too, because she'd been playing mm-hmm. some good squash and she yes. kind of, uh, you know, you could see that she was building towards something big, and uh, now she's uh, forced to be forced to be reckoned with uh, at the very top of the game going forward. If she wasn't before, yeah. 
Yes, where you saw what she could do. You know, the two final matches, the men's were at Canary Wharf and the women's at the Black Bull Club. And she certainly showed in the Black Bull tournament what she's capable of delivering. Yeah. No, she's got a well, uh, an all-round game and uh, <clears throat> she moves well, hits winners, fit, feisty. Yeah, she's got it all. Yeah, great package. <laughs> what a yeah. great player. Absolutely. Now uh, let's get let's get to the nuts and bolts of this today because we're here because of uh, you know what World Squash Day stands for, and I think uh, unlike other World Squash Days, this is. I mean, I, I hate to make an analogy like this, but it, it's almost like the presidential U.S. presidential election. <laughs> There's a lot riding. There's a lot riding. There are lots of parallels between. Uh, how certain world leaders are treating the virus and how certain squash leaders are treating the state of the game. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, it is an, it's an important no day and uh, uh, we, there's a lot, there are a lot of issues, I think, that you've attached, uh, mm. critical ones to, to this one. But if we go back, a lot, on maybe quite a few listeners, new squash players might not know much about uh, what World Squash Day is. Uh, I'll just lay it out and then you, you can build on it if you don't. So uh, the first one, uh, World Squash Day, uh, September, uh, it was in 2001, shortly after the uh, September 11th uh, terrorist It was attack. January the 11th, 2002. 2002, January 11th. It was three months to the day after 9-11. 9-11 to, commemorate, uh, to pay homage to squash players uh, that lost their lives in that uh, you know, the, the yes. fatal attack. So if you don't mind uh, sort of going uh, a little deeper there for us, uh, Alan, how it all came Very, out. very pleased to, Jerry. It was, um, looking back, it was a very emotional process that everybody went through. Um, there were more than 30 members from one club, the New York Athletic Club, great club on the corner of Central Park in Manhattan. And, um, you know, they lost so many members in the World Trade Center. And one of them was a British guy, Derek Sword, who was a Scottish junior international, played alongside Peter Nichol and Martin Heath. And um, a lot of mutual friends wanted to do something to honor him and all the squash players who lost their lives. And that's how World Squash Day was, uh, was begun. Mm. And so we also wanted to do something tangible for the sport at the same time. And World Squash Day was the outcome. And that first match in January 2002, um, what people don't remember is um, the time of 9-11, it coincided with the build-up to the U.S. Open in Boston. Players were caught in midair flying across the Atlantic to play in the US Open. A lot of them um, were obviously uh, diverted far and wide to other cities across the States and up to Canada. And uh, eventually the tournament was, was canceled, but they held a memorial US Open in January, mm -hmm. which Peter Nickel won. And he and guys like Paul Price and John White flew back through the night after the final in Boston, arrived in London the next morning, came straight to the beautiful Lambs Squash Club in the city. And we had an eight-man invitation tournament for the pros, and we had a 15-a-side team match between London and New York. Oh, wow. Well, yes, yes. So it, was, it was 
a truly amazing day. We had a representative from the US Embassy there and so many friends and relatives. Um, Derek Sword's family were there in numbers. And the real tragedy, Derek was engaged two weeks before oh, my. 9-11. Mm. And his fiancée, Maureen Sullivan, as she was then, she supported every tournament for years, even after she had met somebody else a few years later and got married. She right. still came to events in New York and in the UK. Right. Uh, so, world, so World Squash Day, sort of that, that's the, the beginnings of it. And absolutely. Uh, Subsequent, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, subsequent World Squash Days, we've had them each year since then. Uh, they've all taken on a thematic uh, uh, approach to it, right? Uh, yes. Well, the, we had a, some return matches. The London-New York thing was great fun. Yeah. And the first return match in New York, Martin Heath played, Tim Wyant played, John Russell. Uh, lots of great players from New York were there, and it was a another brilliant occasion and the sword family flew over from scotland maureen was there of course and it was it was a great annual reunion but then it kind of morphed into right let's let's move this on a pace and actually do something really tangible for the game mm. and obviously start backing the olympic bids and try and encourage greater participation yeah and that's where we're at now you know it's looking really at yeah. looking at much-needed numbers. No, exactly. Uh, no, exa I mean, uh, I was sort of thinking about this as I was you know, preparing to speak to you, and I, I, you've mm -hmm. probably heard of the term the, the black swan, uh, you know, the unexpected thing that sort of comes when it destroys everything, but in, then in hindsight you realize that you could have done something about it. And uh, yes. I think what, what we're doing now, I think – now is the time uh, because uh, as, as we as we're, we're going to talk about here with with World Squash Day today, there are a couple mm. of themes that you're going to bring about. But uh, squash is in a very precarious, if not worse, situation uh, at the moment. Uh, uh, particularly, this is uh, the COVID situation brings it to light. But even uh, prior to that, uh, it uh, in most very obvious parts of the world, Jerry. I think squash was already in the last chance saloon long before the coronavirus appeared. Yeah. And with clubs closing for six, eight months, um, it's devastating the sport in many parts of the world. A lot of countries, um, squash courts are still not open. Fitness clubs are not open. I think we discussed on email the situation in North America yeah. where lots of fitness chains are going bankrupt. And that could close something like 200 facilities in America and Canada that have squash courts. Yeah. Yeah, it's a serious uh, situation. So uh, so j just give us sort of a, the background uh, about Worlds. I mean, it's obviously it's right around the corner, the five days, five Absolutely. days from now. Uh, so the I mean, I've had uh, Richard Millman on and and at that time we, we discussed eye mask and the covid, uh, yes. uh, you know, bringing ma making squash uh, accessible through uh, uh, eye mask is obviously something that, that we want all players to be using so that we can get back to playing again. Uh, so he, he brought it to my attention, but also there, there are several other 
things that are uh, sort of you're, you're doing with World Squash Day uh, on the 10th? Well, let, let's start about the things we can't do. You know, months ago, mm -hmm. I met with William Louis-Marie, the CEO of World Squash, and we agreed that we should not be <clears throat> encouraging clubs, excuse me, <clears throat> to have large gatherings in poorly ventilated courts connected by tight, narrow corridors. <laughs> right. Um, right. That's that was always going to be a major issue. for disaster, yeah. So we said, right, let's do something completely different. Let's look at some outdoor events that are COVID safe, involving just two or three ambassadors and one photographer to record some safe distancing with people hitting a ball against a wall in different locations. Let's turn this into the biggest social media campaign in the history of the sport so that we can remind people that we still exist. Right, right. And so that's uh, a real theme. Yeah. And now there are, I mean, there aren't many of them, but you do see some of these open air squash courts. I played on one in, in Singapore. Uh, they had an outdoor facility there, mm. uh, but uh, you, there are few and far between. There are maybe a few in New York uh, a few here and there scattered around the world. But that's something that uh, we're going to try to to uh, promote, uh, I think, this time. Yes. This well, the, during the lockdown, I've had some very interesting discussions with professional squash people all over the world. I'm talking about people who have their own clothing brands, their own retail businesses, tournament promoters, club owners, coaches, people who've invested significant amounts of their own money into developing squash. And they all agree that as we move out of lockdown, hopefully we have to look at a completely new landscape for squash because the medical experts tell us that coronavirus is likely to be with us for years to come. Right. And unless we look at outdoor courts and designing them, make them happen, then I think we will face lockdown after lockdown because squash has morphed from being the healthiest sport on the planet to be listed <laughs> as a high-risk activity. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the new Forbes rankings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where squash is now. <laughs> but... Uh, no, it's going to be interesting. I mean, a lot will have to change, won't it? I mean, may maybe we have to, uh, maybe all, maybe we'll be playing in the, in the summer, spring and summer and early fall, as opposed to uh, season being in with normally for me, anyways. In Canada, it was winter. Uh, well, there's a, there's a bigger picture that has been in play over the last three or four years with sports like paddle and pickleball mm. growing massively in popularity and taking market share away from squash. And of course, during lockdown, squash players were able to go outside and hit a ball playing tennis, paddle and pickleball. Yeah. And so suddenly they got the message. These, these sports are safer. They are less likely to be shut down. And so we need to be looking at producing outdoor open air squash courts. And not all, a, I mean, this is a totally different uh, conversation, but... I was mm. talking to someone earlier today. Pickleball is just easy to play. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 so can, but as we all know, squash can be easy to play if people who are yeah. teaching it and promoting it are doing it the right way. And if they're playing with the right ball. 
Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Uh, 99% of club players across the world are playing with the wrong ball and having shorter rallies. We've already seen in the UK a massive growth in racquetball. Yeah. And, and older guys my age, we're getting, we have two-shot rallies because we attack the serve in squash, and yet we're having 20-shot rallies in racquetball, and you're getting a much bigger, better workout from racquetball than we ever do from squash. And so there's, that just tells us maybe we didn't need to try racquetball. We just needed a different ball. Yeah, because I think as a as a coach, you've probably done your fair share of coaching, and one of the most uh, sort of um, difficult things as a coach is teaching squash to an absolute beginner. Yes, and the first and then, thing you need a bouncy ball. You need a bouncy ball, or I forget the name of the game. That, uh, I was speaking to Nick Taylor, and he's a big proponent mm-hmm. of of using different balls, and I think he's yes. one of the guys who's quite outspoken about it. But uh, he said before winning the Masters, the 45-plus World Masters, he didn't play squash for two weeks in prep for that. He played squash 57, I think. So, yes, that well, that's, yeah. that's the yeah. manufactured name for UK racquetball. Yes. Right, right, and, and uh, yeah, UK racquetball. So, uh, and he just said he felt great. That's another issue. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I love I love playing my you know squash twice a week, but I don't like waking up the next day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where I, I would imagine squash fifty seven, uh, uh, at least according to I've never played it, but Nick was just saying he felt like a million dollars heading into the uh, the Masters. Well, the, the great thing is you, you're putting less stress on the body. The ball bounces higher. You've got more time. So you're able to work harder. You're able to reach more balls. You know, if somebody plays a drop shot and you're at the back, when you get to our age, Jerry, we probably just turn around and say, good shot and don't bother to chase it. But in yeah. racquetball, you see this ball sitting up and you think, I can get that. And despite my advancing years, I'll have a go. I'll run up the front. I'll chase it. Yeah. The, the old too, that it, really, it helped his squash game in some yeah, way. Totally maybe, maybe the hold on the ball or his movement. Uh, yeah. Sort of movement mm-hmm. patterns and things. So, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, as we were, I think we got off track there, but I guess, you know, well, some, I, I, yeah. I can jump in there with a little bit more news on racquetball. I've been talking in some depth with Mark Fuller, who, who runs a brilliant UK racquetball series. And we're talking about a British Open for racquetball. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Assuming courts are open again by then. But we're looking at inviting players from all over the world for a British Open racquetball tournament. Okay. And I've already been canvassing players in different parts of the world in Australia, USA, and received a very positive response. Yeah, I think there's been quite a few, uh, you know, big name squash players who've who've won. Rack, uh, yes. Daryl Selby, if memory serves, he he's Daryl Selby. Peter Nichols had a go and done yeah. well. Nick Matthew had a go last year. Simon Park has started. <laughs> okay, yeah, and you, yeah, you've got some very good players like Mike Harris down in the West Country. Um, yeah, some really top squash players are enjoying racquetball. So is this, uh, this isn't uh, the American version of racquetball, though, is it? There's a tin still, right? Yeah, we play with a tin. American racquetball is all drive and dive. And much as I 
have made lots of good friends in American racquetball, trying to get the two sports working a bit more closely. I think because we have a tin, we have a superior game. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 without the tin, the, the rallies just, there. I mean, you're either going to hit a winner or it's, mm. you're not. It's basically, yeah. Uh, we have a more intelligently crafted alternative. I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, it's comparing cricket to baseball, maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, yeah, so uh, I've been, I looked at uh, Squash Madden, you, uh, your, your website, which is fantastic. You've got some really good stuff up there. Not only the stuff that you've written, but uh, your contributors. And uh, uh, one, uh, you interviewed Rod uh, Bannister recently. And yeah. that was fantastic. And obviously, I think the whole squash world, every one of us who are enthusiasts uh, and competitors and longtime players, uh, we're, we're quite worried. And some of us are angry and some, we just want to see things change and change isn't really happening. But yeah. I think now there's a little bit of a groundswell and things are could happen if we stay together like this. What did uh, Rod have to say about... Um, you know, just, just in, in people can go to the website and read it, but uh, yes. what were your in, in impressions of what he had to say? I think he oh, called right. it uh, squash, uh, the squash, um, street squash. That was it. Yes. Well, Rod moved back to New Zealand um, just before the, uh, the travel ban started in Australia because he was working as general manager at the National Squash Centre on the Gold Coast had a dream job, but he and his wife and, and kids had a sit down and discussed what they should do during the lockdown. And they decided to head back to New Zealand. And Rod has landed a lovely job, another dream job with a club called um, Squash Gym in, in New Zealand, Palmerston North, bit of a sleeping giant in terms of New Zealand squash. Right. Rod is really looking forward to helping the club grow again. But what he wrote in Squash Mad is about we need new ideas, we need yeah. new direction, we need new marketing, we need new leadership. And we can't have this game run by dusty old fossils, I think. That's, <laughs> that's what he said, yeah. Something well, like that. Well, it's yeah. true. I mean, uh, mm. we, we keep running into the same issues and same problems all the time when we don't get what we want. Well, the, we, the big we issue. do something different. The reason why pickleball is so popular is that it does not have the barriers to access that squash has. You know, we have courts that are hidden inside private buildings yeah. that no one ever sees. There are some of the world's greatest squash clubs, but people walk past and don't know they're there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they can't see what's inside. No, exactly. Pickleball, tennis, it's all out in the open air. Yeah, remember my my old squash club in Halifax, uh, Canada. It was a fantastic club. Uh, mm. We used to host the Blue Nose Classic uh, event. Yes, great tournament. But uh, my my club, uh, three great courts on the third floor of a medical uh, building. Uh, it was all doctors' offices around it. But no, you would never have known it was there unless you. Yeah. Someone brought you there, right? <laughs> and of course, the, the other major barrier is a financial one. There's a lot of the big expensive clubs in North America, as you know, there's often a joining fee of something like $30,000. 
an expensive annual membership fee on top. Yeah. And you're instantly alienating a large percentage of the population who simply cannot afford that level of, of club membership fees. So what I'm trying to do with a consultancy I formed is building new clubs that are a cheaper to build. So we're trying to attract a new generation of club owners, making it more affordable to build new clubs and pass on the savings mm. to the most important people of all, which is the players. No, definitely. Def yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so Rod, Rod was a proponent of this uh, street squash. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's go back to street squash. Straight away, as soon as there was the lockdown in Australia, Rod said, right, let's go back to basics. Let's get outside and hit a ball against a wall. That's how every court sport began. Yeah. And so people, you saw some amazing things during lockdown. Oh, yeah. People yeah. creating their own courts in their own basements, garages, hitting outside in the garden, finding a local factory wall and hitting against that. It was There was, it was a guy, uh, I saw his videos on Facebook, a Steve... Polly, I think his name yes. is Polly. He built his own court. Yes, looks fantastic. I, I want to get yeah. out there and have a hit with him. Uh. <laughs> yes, what's what's emerged is a lot of artisan builders who have built yeah. their own courts. Yeah, you just get the dimensions right, and either you or you know you you bring in a friend and you you do what you can and build something, and hopefully it it works. But that, that's what we need. Yeah. We saw Rob Gibraltar in New York building the steel court. Yeah. Which was, an, you know, that was an art project. A well, community art project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It turned out with a perfectly workable professional squash court that a lot of pros have loved coming and hitting on. And they say it plays absolutely true. Mm. Even a wooden floor left out in the rain which normally, if, if that was a PSA court, the, the floor would be wrecked. They used old ship's timbers, which apparently used to that kind of weathering and yeah. did not um, mess up, bend, or anything. They, they, they stayed good quality, whatever the weather. Okay. Okay, well, I mean, that, that's got to be sort of the direction that we need to take, isn't it? Because... Uh, indoor facilities, obviously, due to COVID, they're not affordable. Um, you know, we got we have to get kids involved. Yes, in schools, uh, schools don't have money, so it, it all makes sense. Uh, well, there's the interesting thing. First of all, there's the the health aspect. Hmm. You know, we we are the first sport that will be shut down because we play in these small indoor boxes that are likely to harbor the germs if they exist. Yeah. So looking at an outdoor alternative is an absolute must. Yeah. But the other great benefit is suddenly the game becomes visible. Yeah, it's accessible. To the wider public. And if you can build courts that are cheaper and make the game cheaper and more accessible, I think we could see a new boom in the game. Well, I mean, all of, the, all of the most popular sports in the world are popular because you can just walk down the street and play. Exactly. <laughs> uh, basketball, exactly. football, uh, footy. Uh, yes. Uh, British football. Uh, all of these sports, you can just go outside. Mm -hmm. Even ice hockey to a certain degree. When the, uh, yes. when the ice hardens in the winter, we all put on our skates and head to the lake and play. 
go to Sweden. They have an outdoor version called Bandy, which okay. is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Swedes know what they're doing. That's for yes, sure. Yes, exactly. So, so we, look at, we look at squash clubs in the UK that have added paddle to their mm-hmm. facilities, and they put a canopy over the court so people can carry on playing in the winter. Obviously, it keeps the rain and the sun off the courts. So, you know, there, there are lots of engineering solutions that I'm looking at right now with different friends across the world all joining in, all sharing ideas so that we can hopefully emerge with some ideas of how to make this work. What would the cost of, uh, I, I guess, building a paddle court uh, compared to, like an outdoor paddle court compared to uh, an outdoor squash court be? Do, do, do we know? Um, I do know, but the, we don't yet know the fine details of building an outdoor squash court. Obviously, hmm. Rob Gibraltar's steel court used um, a different construction process um, yeah. <laughs> but what I'd love to see is a cheaper outdoor court that was simple to build, easy to put up. You can have clubs with indoor courts and outdoor courts, but that yeah. outdoor court can be your shop window. Oh, exactly. And I know there's a group in, in Central America. They're, they're designing a new project right now with six open-air courts. So the, the revolution is starting. That's brilliant. People are already building open air courts. Yeah, well, it's got it's got to happen. I think now if we're, mm. uh, the COVID's forced our hand more or less, but we should have been going yes. down that road uh, much much earlier. Yes, order, like you said, in order in order to spread awareness, in order there's so many things in order to get mm. kids involved to make it kind of a trendy thing. I mean, pickleball. Uh, squash is much better game than pickleball. Uh, don't, I mean, uh, of course, pickleball is easy and it's fun. Yeah. But the reason it's easy and fun is because of the way it's been mm-hmm. promoted and the way the way it's been the way the way you can play the game. Anyone can play. So that's what we. What you're seeing is some some amazing scenes in pickleball that reminds me of what happened in squash 40 50 years ago the ideas the energy the new buildings some fantastic clubs with bars restaurants hotels on site yeah there's a club in florida that has a massive parking lot so you can drive your your own vehicles your own uh, camper vans and park up instead of paying for a hotel and you can use the club as long as you like yeah yeah yeah. And there's there's a chain called Chicken and Pickle. So it's basically a <laughs> chicken restaurant chain allied to a pickleball club. And these places, you know, pre-lockdown were absolutely booming. Yeah, this was squash uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Yes, and, uh, absolutely. That's when my parents, uh, they, they played and it was uh, the in thing. All their friends, many of their friends were playing and it was trendy and uh, I think it was just a good, you know, good social fit. Yeah. You know? I think what pickleball is showing us is that some of the time we've forgotten to have fun in squash. It's got so serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. pickleball, you're seeing middle-aged couples, not necessarily in great shape, in great health, but it's they're joining as couples with other couples. They have a very 
yeah. low uh, talent threshold, if you like. It's so easy to pick up and play, easy to learn. And they play for fun, which is really what we all want. Yeah, it's fun for the whole family. So many barriers. Fun for the whole family, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, also on your on Squash Mad, uh, Alan, you had uh, what ter- turns out to be one of my old uh, junior. Uh, I played against him in the juniors, Canadian uh, junior nationals, Eduardo uh, Alvarez yes. in Toronto. We have we kind of crossed paths two, three times a year back in the day. But, and I didn't realize uh, that he was a club owner in Toronto until I read your piece on him. But he, uh, he had a lot of the squash community uh, caught the attention of quite a few people in the squash community with what he wrote. Uh, give us a bit of a thumbnail, because uh, it was quite a lengthy, lengthy piece there. Yes, uh, I think he went back and it was very well uh, written and, and detailed. But what mm-hmm. was the uh, sort of the, the th- give us a thumbnail about what uh, Eduardo was talking about in terms of club ownership and, and changing that di- dynamic. Well, Ed has written two pieces for Squash Mad now, and he and I are in contact almost every day and have been um, since uh, the middle of the lockdown when I published an article and Ed made a very intelligent comment. And I thought, I'm going to speak to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. And it turns out, as you said, Ed is a club owner on the outskirts of Toronto. He's got four squash courts, but he... Uh, his main business really is running a fitness club. Okay. And what Ed brings to the debate is the knowledge of management and sales and the sales pitch and understanding the dynamics behind the decision-making process when people choose to spend their money on a club membership I don't think squash people know any of these questions. They don't know that you process. Just, you just want to play squash. Yeah. yeah. But the the decision to join a gym could be a very emotional one. It could be to do with your weight, your health, your appearance, your lifestyle. And what you find, what Ed has taught me, is that the fitness chains all have a very carefully orchestrated and structured program mm-hmm. to – encourage people to join your club there is a a very thorough process that you go through yeah in attracting members and this I, goes I remember just sorry for interrupt i remember last summer my daughter took me to help her join the gym mm. and it was like i i we, it was this whole like one hour long interview and process and you just yeah. didn't fill out a form yeah was, absolutely uh, yeah, it was quite in depth, and they wanted to know everything, and they, they mm. made her feel like part of uh, their family. But uh, in in the town where I live, there are two local squash clubs. If you turned up in the afternoon and knocked on the door, you couldn't get in because it's a private club, right? Yeah, and the members have their own keys. <laughs> so, in terms, of Ed's second article was about advertising. We have a great product. Squash is a brilliant product. But who is doing the advertising? Right. Now, there, yeah. there was some brushback, I know, from from a couple of people. And it's, it's always good to discuss that side of it yeah. so that we can yeah. show, you know, what they're saying and, and maybe, you know, put 
set things straight in, in our or your estimation. Mm. So where did the brushback uh, come from and, and what's the uh, response? Well, I've discussed this at great depth with Ed and obviously traditional squash people don't like fitness. They, they view the fitness industry. Um, I used to myself that, that squash was severely damaged by the fitness industry. But then when I looked at what happened in the UK, the David Lloyd fitness chain decided to close more than a hundred courts two years ago. Yeah. We were the only website. I was the only journalist to actually write about that, by the way, the others just ignored it. Yeah. yeah. But that was the loss of 120 squash courts. This is serious stuff. And I did a lot of research into the industry, into the fitness industry and how those people think. And Ed has basically condensed that, that whole debate into the fact that they are two separate industries. Ed's key and core revenue is from fitness, not from squash. He has four squash courts. He loves the game. He's an ex-player, ex-teaching ex pro. He wants the game to thrive. But 95% of his revenues come from fitness, not from squash. Squash is 5% of the business. So he, So his thinking now is he's got to somehow connect the two basically well what what ed understands is that we need a new kind of squash club partnering with pickleball and paddle and market it and promote it professionally right so he he's happy he wants to bring the skills that he's learned in the fitness industry into the squash industry and teach people how to sell the game of squash and the, 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 there was one guy, I forget his name, but he sort of, uh, what he, his response to it was, was, got a bit of attention. What, what did he say, uh, Alan? You remind me, Jerry, go on. No, I, I'm full on with World Squash. <laughs> I forget his name. <laughs> there were, we had more than 50 responses. There were 50 comments beneath yeah. the article. It was great. I think, I think people, the general response from, from those who are, posting a negative response was like, you know, squash is great. Leave it alone. It doesn't need changing. Right, right. Yeah. But actually yeah, that, that around, sums it up. Yeah. That's kind of the attitude of, of so many world leaders to the coronavirus. So there's nothing to worry about. It'll be gone in a few weeks. Yeah, until, we'll they, to, until they're in the hospital. And uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But what people don't realize is that this game of ours, this brilliant, wonderful game of squash is collapsing right now. Yeah. Hundreds of clubs are going to the wall because of coronavirus. The fitness chains with squash courts are closing. They're going bankrupt. Yeah, I guess the thing is, like these clubs, uh, the, the, the privileged clubs, the Harvard clubs and the, the Yale clubs and these places, uh, fantastic facilities and tradition. Yes. And they're going to exist no matter. They will carry on. They will carry on. But, uh, but, uh, but the game on itself, big. Uh, yeah. The hard, big hardball doubles are not open to the public. <laughs> yeah, hardball doubles will thrive, uh, <laughs> but but uh, the, the game of squash itself will not grow. The numbers will drop. Yeah, you know the wealthy clubs will carry on regardless, doing what they do. 
And this is one of the issues that I face every year with World Squash Day in encouraging these wealthy clubs, private clubs, country clubs to open their doors and encourage new people in. I now know that is the last thing they want to do. They do <laughs> not want the great unwashed coming through their doors. Right. So we need a new type of club that is affordable and accessible and visible. And that's the, that, that's the sort of, uh, that's the open air. Yes. And if squash is working with pickleball and paddle, we yeah. could be creating some brilliant new clubs, doing things differently, but putting squash front and center of the whole operation. Because at the moment, we're being left behind. We are losing a significant market share to these other sports. Yeah. And I don't see any federations responding. But there are some very bright people out there who understand the business world, who understand that we need some change in the way that we create clubs. Well, the squash, uh, I mean, the guys who, uh, at least at the PSA and those people who run squash at that, at that level, they seem to be sort of a younger, a younger group of guys. I mean, Alex is not, you know, he's my age, I guess. Yes. But, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they, they, I think they're young enough, smart enough, uh, savvy enough, and I think they're working hard enough to, and, and they're, they're guys, they, it seems to me, having talked to them several times, they, they want this, what you're talking about and what we're trying to do here. They would love to see all of this come to fruition and, and they do anything, I think, to help it make it work. Well, that, that is very reassuring to hear. I, I sent you a, an email earlier on, Jerry, and I'll read some of it out with a headline, How Squash is So Dysfunctional. Dysfunctional, yes, yes. <laughs> at the top level, we have all these great things. You know, we have in the PSA tournaments, we have spectacular glass courts set up in amazing locations like the pyramids. We have live streaming of every major tournament on Squash TV. We have sellout crowds at Canary Wharf and New York at the Grand Central Station. The top pros are all brilliant athletes who are also wonderful ambassadors for the game. We have equal prize money for men and women. And last year we had the first million dollar tournament for the world championships in Chicago. These are all amazing steps of progress, genuine progress. However, if you compare that with what's happening in the grassroots of the game, we're seeing an almost total collapse in some countries. No, exactly. I, I mean, the PSA are doing their job, aren't they? I mean, they're, that, yeah, that's basically... That's like a machine, a relentless machine. Yeah. They're doing a brilliant job. So where, where, does, where do, does grassroots global development sort of infrastructure and ideas, where, where do they stem from? I mean, is, well, it just, is it World Squash Day? Is it? What's we do. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a team of friends helping me put this together. And, yeah. you know, we, we want to encourage clubs and federations to literally think outside the box. We play squash inside a box, but we need to think outside the box. Well, yeah, yeah. Connect with your local communities is just one thing. But actually 
the wider issue, this this whole thing about building a new future for the game, I don't see much appetite from some of the federations. Yeah, the federate. I mean, are the federations really that connected anymore? Uh, I mean, globally, do they like do do the presidents uh, of each federation do they meet at all? Do they communicate well? Uh, uh, well, I'm the vehicle sure. is obviously the World Squash Federation, and they have a very bright guy, William Louis Marie, yeah. who's taken over as CEO. He is a fantastic guy, understands business, understands marketing. He is trying to drive these changes. So he, William is on board. He's on board, right. Absolutely. But what we need is, is people with business brains from the squash community to, to actually come together, come forward and make these things happen. Yeah, people too. Sadly, in some countries, squash is so fragile. That's the sad part about running World Squash Day is that I talk to people all over the world all the time and I hear some really sad stories coming back. Right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, end this on a happy note with World yes. Squash, Alan. You, I know you guys, uh, part of the initiative as well is uh, the charity stuff that you put together for world squash day you've done that for every one of them that you've had and this yes. year is no different uh you've got uh, i think one of them is for the the players um we are one we are one the we are yes. one fund which is fantastic and then the other is for covid um i believe is that what we're doing we've we've got um the world squash day auction Oh, yeah, that's run, right. run by James Roberts. Does a James yeah. does a brilliant job um, getting all these lots together. We've had some wonderful donations from players like Ali Farag, Sarah Jane Perry, Daryl Selby, donating shirts, rackets, bits and pieces for the auction. We've also got 305 Squash um, producing T-shirts, and every penny of profit goes to the We Are One Fund for the professional players who are experiencing financial hardship. Yeah. And, so, and there are some great things. And, uh, what was that statistic that you, you mentioned earlier? Uh, 99, 1% uh, of the prize money, 99% uh, <laughs> of the prize money goes to 1% of the, the professional. No, what I was talking about, the, the ministry <laughs> of tongue in cheek data. <laughs> that's the, that's the uh, bear. It was a Bernie Sanders uh, stati uh, numbers there, right? 99% of squash funding goes to the top 1% of players. Yeah. This is not this is not an attack on the pros. This is like when we talk about squash marketing, everything is aimed at the top players whether it's juniors, team players, elite players. Yeah. Actually, squash is now in in serious trouble in many many countries and that percentage needs to be turned around so that serious money is spent on rescuing this sport on attracting new players so that this sport can survive absolutely yeah well there's a lot that we can do to uh to raise the profile of the game we talked about the key points today but the pair the the one initiative the the uh the paraphernalia the auction the squash auction what are some of the um the big name things that are being auctioned off. I saw you said Nick Matthew, uh, one yes. of his book, right? Uh, yes, Nick's book, a signed copy of Nick's book, a signed shirt from Ali Farag, 
signed memorabilia from Daryl Selby, Sarah Jane Perry. Or one of his uh, trick shot balls or something. And... <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Golf free ball. coaching, free coaching <laughs> from Daryl. How to play a winner. How to, How to hit a nick between your legs. Between your legs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all good. Yeah, stuff. We want, basically, we want people to have a lot of fun. On World Squash Day, and how how do Whether people indoors or get outdoor. involved with the with the auction if if they want to, Alan? Um, just follow out everything on social media. We've got the World Squash Day Twitter feed and Facebook feed, and James Roberts is updating those regularly. the The auction went live last night, and so we we have lots of lots of great things. Perfect. And we're also raising some, some of the money is going as a donation going towards the world squash library founded by That's right. Andrew Shelley. Andrew Shelley and just, talked to me about that. I had him on the podcast uh, <laughs> about a year and a half or so ago. And that was sort of when it was, uh, when he was thinking about uh, putting it together. Well, I, I need to thank Andrew for helping me clear out my garage. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> with hundreds and hundreds of magazines and books. Great. And bits of memorabilia that I was, my wife was very happy that I donated to Andrew. Here's, here's a thought to provoke a little bit of debate, Jerry. Instead of a club bar full of old boys talking about the 80s, yeah. we should shut that down and have a gaming lounge to attract kids into our clubs. There we go. That, that would work. Uh, no, I re- actually, I remember at my old club, we used to have uh, we used to have those little those video games where you'd insert the the quarter and just play it. I think yes. half, half the when yep. we weren't playing, we were there playing those. Exactly. Games. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, look how they've come on. We now have interactive squash courts. Yeah. And you imagine if you had a gaming lounge for kids and an interactive court next door. I think that would be an easy sell. It would. But I think you need the gaming lounge in first to get the kids in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the right approach. Most parents think, I, I, I saw an amazing post last week, somebody talking about, oh, parents need to get their kids down to the club and their grandparents need to be doing this as well. And I thought, the kids that I know, the last thing they want to do is hang out with their parents. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They, they, so they need some space of their own. No, they do. They they do well, uh, Alan. I just want to say uh, what you're doing with World Squash Day and what you're doing to try to uh, uh, really promote the game and grow the game. And uh, you know, the game is in trouble uh, right now, but we're you know everybody uh, is doing their best. But you've really uh, really taken the initiative and put a lot of work and hard work and effort into this. And uh, on behalf of the the squash community, I just want to thank you for for the work that you've done. And uh, World Squash Day is uh, October 10th, just around the corner. Uh, everybody participate in that uh, day. Watch the uh, uh, Twitter feed for World, World Squash Day and the squashmad.com website. What am I missing? World, worldsquashday.net. Dot net. World Squash World Day. Day. We have our own website. The toolkit is on there. And it was written months ago with COVID restrictions in mind. So if clubs can't invite dozens of people into their premises, the whole idea is get outside, generate some publicity, create the biggest social media campaign in the history of the sport and remind people that squash is still alive. Yeah, it's the greatest sport in the world, Alan. Uh, Thank you so much for today. 
and uh, really appreciate it. World Squash Day, October 10th. Enjoy and all the best. Thank sir. you, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. Really appreciate that. Well, everyone, it uh, doesn't get much better than that. Very eye-opening, very candid, and we, uh, you know, we maybe talk about things like the ele- the elephant in the room. Many elephants in that room for squash right now because we're in a very precarious situation. Many thanks, though, uh, to Alan because he's uh, out there uh, pounding the pavement, trying to find the way to grow the game, trying to find a way to uh, avoid, you know, that black swan that's a. Uh, it's right there. Uh, club closures, um, not as many people playing the game, and uh, taking on issues like making the game more accessible to different demographics, the young, the old, and, uh, and the like. So many thanks to, to Alan for his time, and many thanks to him for what he does for the game. Uh, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Take a look at all the other podcasts. There are 165 of them down there, all the way from Neil Harvey, all the way up to the latest ones, Kareem Abdul-Gawad and uh, Alan Thatcher and World Squash Day and many, many more in between. Thanks so much for listening. Take care and have a great day. Enjoy your squash. Goodbye now.